Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. There were definitely warning signs that I think as a young kid, I just blew off as not being an issue. But I was put through a program that condoned abuse. Welcome to The Real Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Max Gershberg. When running prodigy Mary Kane first linked up with famed coach and former marathon legend Alberto Salazar, it was supposed to cement Kane's status as the future of American track and field. Kane was a teenage phenom, and Salazar, the sport's foremost kingmaker and leader of Nike's fabled all-star track team known as the Oregon Project, was going to be the one to steer her to stardom. But instead, under Salazar's tutelage, Kane's career took an unexpected turn. We first heard her story on Real Sports in January. Kane and a number of other Oregon Project stars told us that behind the scenes of Nike's dream team, things were not what they seemed. In pursuit of track and field glory, Salazar was allegedly subjecting his athletes to a constant barrage of physical and mental torment, and forcing them to comply with an experimental diet of potentially dangerous performance-enhancing medication. At the time we heard that story, the future of Alberto Salazar was in limbo. He was already facing numerous suspensions for his actions, but amidst appeals, there was still an open question of if or when the iconic coach would return to the track. As you'll learn later on in today's podcast, in the time since, rulings have been made, and Salazar's status has come into clearer focus. Coming up, you'll hear David Scott's original report from January, and then we'll be joined by Mary Kane to discuss the new developments in this story, as well as in Kane's own career. But first, here's David Scott's Real Sports Report on the Nike Oregon Project. Kane with 100 to go. The title is hers, surely. By the time she was a teenager, Mary Kane was already the talk of the running world, a prodigy who could one day be a legend. She is absolutely the future of American distance running, and she's only 16. Immensely gifted, but still raw, Kane needed just one thing to unlock her potential and make her America's next great running star, the right coach. Then she got the call that would change the course of her career and her life. I heard the phone ring. And then I just hear my mom, like, clearly sprinting downstairs. She comes running into my room, and she's like, that was Alberto Salazar. He wants to coach you. Alberto Salazar was running royalty. As a competitor, he'd won the New York City Marathon three times. As a coach, he'd minted one champion after another. Now, Salazar would take Mary Kane under his wing. He vowed to make her great and also 
keep her safe. She's got a lot of talent. My job is to make sure that that talent is, is fulfilled, that she doesn't get injured. This is like your favorite NFL coach calling you up as a high schooler and saying, you want to join the team? To feel like with your early success and him on your side, you could not just dream about the Olympics, but plan for them. Exactly. Yeah. I remember being so, just so happy and so excited. Even more so because it wasn't just Salazar bringing her aboard. Kane would be running for Nike, the company that for years had not only cultivated champions on the field of play, but had built its brand on a progressive mentality, encouraging athletes of all stripes to reach for the stars. Don't ask if your dreams are crazy. Ask if they're crazy enough. To the young runner, it all seemed too good to be true. Now, she says, it was. There were definitely warning signs that I think as a young kid, I just blew off as not being an issue. But I was put through a program that condoned abuse. It was supposed to be the sport's premier breeding ground for champions. But now, former members of Nike's elite running team, known as the Oregon Project, say the company's pursuit of glory came at a staggering cost to their health. They say they endured physical torment, mental abuse, and a regimen full of experimental and potentially dangerous medication, all in the name of speed and in service of the celebrated Nike swoosh. This young lady is wonderfully gifted. Mary Kane says the abuse began shortly after her arrival at the Nike campus. That's when she says Alberto Salazar, the coach she'd idolized, began to berate her about her weight. Mary. Even weighing her in front of her teammates. I am being told in front of the other athletes on the track, you have clearly gained five pounds since this morning. You look terrible. You are running terrible. And I was so ashamed of myself. How did you feel when uh, he would say, you didn't run well, get on the scale? So embarrassed. I mean, like, for me, it was just, I was working so hard. I was, like, severely under eating. By the end of the year, I tried to purge. I would stick my finger or a spoon down my throat, um, and I wouldn't throw up, and then I would hate myself because I couldn't do it. I'm in a full-blown eating disorder at this point. Full-blown eating disorder? Yeah, because you're looking at yourself in the mirror and you see an incredibly heavy person. Kane was just 18 years old at the time, but says she kept her worsening condition a secret, even from her parents, because, she says, Salazar made it clear that he wanted Oregon Project business to remain in-house. I was told that you're an adult now. You can't go crying to your parents every time you don't like something we're saying. Pretty much it's our way or the highway. Alberto Salazar declined our request for an interview, but says he never weight-shamed Mary Kane or directed her to maintain an unhealthy weight. But Kane is not the only Nike runner who says they felt overwhelming pressure to meet Salazar's demands. For years, Kara Goucher was among Salazar's star pupils, a two-time U.S. Olympian and silver medalist at the World Championships. Then she and her husband, Adam, decided to have a child. Outwardly, Nike supported the move, coordinating photo shoots that paired Goucher's growing belly 
with the famous Nike swoosh and placing stories about her pregnancy in magazines, prominently touting Nike's steadfast support of the modern athletic mother. But behind the scenes, Goucher says, it was a different story. The image they were selling of women can do anything and we support women was nothing like the reality. The reality, Goucher says, is that as soon as she stopped racing in preparation for childbirth, Nike dropped her from the team's payroll. She says that according to her coach Alberto Salazar, she'd get paid again once she returned to racing and returned to the medal stand. Alberto's telling me, if you just win Boston... Just win Boston. It'll go away. They'll pay you. It'll be fine. Just go win the Boston Marathon in six months and all is forgiven for having a baby? Yes. Did you feel like um, you just had no choice but to get yourself back out there, whatever it took, whatever it cost you? Yeah. I mean, my body was in pain every day. I was in pain. But what am I going to do? Nobody cares. Nobody cares that my hip is killing me. Nobody cares that I'm still bleeding three months after I gave birth. Nobody cares. They just need me to return to who I was. Goucher says she trained for the Boston Marathon like her livelihood depended on it, even when her three-month-old son, Colt, fell critically ill. Our son got sick, very sick, and needed emergency surgery. Oh, my God. And I had my first race back plan that weekend. And there was never any discussion of, let's find another race, or maybe you should just, you know, take a few days with your child. You know, I left Colton in the hospital to go to practice. Alberto didn't step up and say, wait a minute, you need to attend to what's more important. No, he said, surgery's over. We have evening practice. I'll see you there. Just six months after giving birth, Goucher managed to get on the starting line of the Boston Marathon, where she ran a personal best time and placed fifth. Six months after having a baby, this is incredible stuff. But that didn't cut it for Salazar and the swoosh. After the Boston Marathon, the first thing he said to my mother and my sister when they saw him, she's just too big. She's just still too big. Yeah, I watched her kill herself and break her body to rush to get back. And I'm just appalled at the coarseness of, you're just too big. Salazar denies ever tying Goucher's marathon performance to her pay or pressuring her back onto the track. Goucher believes the rush back from pregnancy ultimately destroyed her health. Shortly after the Boston Marathon, she suffered a fractured femur, the first of a series of injuries that ended her career. And before long, one of her teenage teammates would suffer a similar fate. I did extra cross training. I did extra core training. I did everything that I could do to try to lose weight. But my body was fighting me. In the case of Mary Kane, Salazar's rigorous training program proved too much for a girl in the throes of an eating disorder. Kane began to suffer from amenorrhea, a condition that prevented her from menstruating for three and a half years and left her bones dangerously brittle. Before long, the teenager suffered multiple stress fractures. Mary Kane is well back of the field, third to last. As her body crumbled, so did her performance on the track, and eventually, her mental health. 
Finally, Kane had one more disappointing finish than she could handle. Moser now passes Kane. So Kane is struggling. Afterwards, I was kind of like under these like bleachers and I was taking, and I'm sorry if this is graphic, but I was taking the pins from my um, bib and I was using them to go like this. Scratching, scraping. Going pretty deep. Breaking the skin. Yeah. That's when Kane says she was spotted by Darren Treasure, the Nike team psychologist. He caught me doing that and was just told, like, knock that up, get up. We're going to where the rest of the team is. He sees you cutting yourself and says, knock it off. Mm-hmm. There's no discussion of treating what might have appeared to be a compulsive behavior or disorder? No. Kane says she was shocked by the response because Treasure was the Oregon Project's mental health expert, one of the sport's most reputable psychologists, or so she thought. He told, and Alberto perpetuated to everybody that he was a psychologist, but he wasn't. Even while the Nike Oregon Project website touted Treasure as a sports psychologist, he was not a licensed psychologist at all, but a glorified assistant coach who Kane treated as a confidant, but who she now believes spilled her secrets to Salazar and left her helpless in her time of need. I am trapped because these are the people who are supposed to help me and they are not helping me. They represented to the world he was a psychologist they presented him to you as a psychologist. What do you now think his real role was? To serve Alberto, probably to serve Nike. Darren Treasure has denied ever seeing Kane cut herself, but refused our request for an interview. Increasingly desperate, Kane says she began to contemplate suicide. In a final cry for help, Kane says she directly pleaded with Salazar and Treasure after a race in a Nike team hotel room. That's when I just was like, I am not okay. I have been cutting myself. I have been trying to purge. I was getting to a point where I was scaring myself. And I just needed help. And at that point, I was told that they wanted to go to sleep and that it was late. And we had early morning flights and that I should just go to bed and sleep it off. And like, I just feel so bad for that girl. Salazar and Treasure deny Kane's account. But days later, Mary Kane was on a flight back home to New York, where she'd spend years trying to piece back together her life. Meanwhile, back in Oregon, the Nike running team never broke stride. They wanted to win, and anything after that, they didn't care about. It was somebody else's problem. Dorian Ulrey joined the Nike Oregon Project in 2012. There, he says, he was abused in a different way. Ulrey says he was ordered by Alberto Salazar to regularly consume a cocktail of performance-enhancing drugs, regardless of his own fears for his health. Do without asking. Take this without pushing back. Put this into your body uh, without batting an eyelash. That was the process. In fact, 
Ulrich says that Coach Salazar also played the role of unofficial team doctor, dispensing a regimen of his own creation. There was a powder that we mixed into drinks in a white tub, unmarked, that came from Alberto's garage. Uh, so he'd roll up on whatever day of the week that was and pop open the trunk of his car and, and hey, powder day, uh, come, come get your powder. <laughs> Unidentified? Yeah, unidentified. At the time, did it strike you as, as strange or unusual, if not inappropriate? Yes, absolutely. Ulrich's fears grew when he learned a bit about another drug he was being told to take by Salazar, a drug called calcitonin. My holy shit moment was uh, finding out that it was a drug that was linked to cancer, a higher rate of cancer. And I reached out to a couple of friends and, and one had even said, hey man, they pulled this stuff from the shelf in Europe. Salazar says that all drugs were dispensed under the supervision of doctors. But when word of his pharmaceutical regimen began to leak out to anti-doping officials, Salazar's entire program began to unravel. There's a clear line. And when you cross that line and it puts athletes in the type of abusive, unsafe, unhealthy environment that this did, that's when it has to stop. Travis Tigert is the longtime chief at the U.S. Anti-Doping Agency, or USADA the nation's police when it comes to the doping of athletes. He says that when his investigators began peeling back the curtain of Salazar's program, they were shocked at what they found. You've called the athletes in this whole scheme laboratory animals. I, I think the athletes were treated like guinea pigs to try to get them to win so that the Nike brand could continue to profit by the very people that they were you know, subjecting to this kind of abuse and ultimately to the rule um, violations. And it appears that Nike wasn't just profiting off of Salazar's drug-related activities, but also may have been involved in carrying them out. The investigation unearthed emails that show Nike's then-CEO, Mark Parker, communicating with Salazar and a team doctor about testing with illegal testosterone gel in the Nike lab. There's an email to Mark Parker about the experiment saying, we're going to determine the minimal amount of gel that would cause a problem. And, and Parker, for his part, writes back, it will be interesting to determine the minimal amount of topical male hormone, testosterone, required to create a positive test. Um, what did that exchange tell you? I think they're trying to find out how much you could use without causing a positive test. And you don't have to be the CEO of a sports company to know testosterone is the fundamental doping drug of choice for athletes who want to cheat. Nike representatives declined our request for an interview, but in a statement told us the company had merely been conducting an experiment to learn if their athletes could be sabotaged, perhaps by an outsider intent on rubbing topical testosterone on their skin. They justify this by saying that um, this was just their way of playing defense against others who would break the rules. It's just a sham. They, they got caught with their hand in the cookie jar. And after the fact, they've attempted to make up this story to justify. I, I think it, it's unbelievable that a corporation would knowingly allow this to happen on its campus. With the evidence provided by whistleblowers, USADA found that Alberto Salazar had violated multiple doping rules and banned him from coaching for four years. 
In response, Nike announced it would conduct its own investigation into what happened inside its vaunted track program. But several aggrieved former Nike runners told us they were never contacted to provide information. They did an internal investigation, but they never talked to us. Never talked to you? Never oh, no. talked to us. Nope. Not once. So they're going to say that they didn't find any indication of abuse. Well, why don't you talk to the abused? Indeed, both Nike and Alberto Salazar say that the coach never abused his athletes or forced them to take drugs and that he never intentionally violated any rules. Salazar is now appealing his suspension with the financial backing of Nike. What does the Nike swoosh mean for you now? I think nothing. Absolutely nothing. The truth is, they're a brand that wants to sell shoes. And they're going to sell it with lies. They're going to sell it with cheating. They're going to sell it any way that they can. All right, we're now joined by Mary Kane. Mary, thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. So for our audience, this is a story that I actually produced, and we spent a long time in discussion trying to get an interview with Alberto Salazar, with Nike. They declined our request for interview, but they made very clear emphatically that Alberto had never intentionally violated any rules in their eyes. But ultimately, the court of arbitration upheld USADA's four-year suspension. What was your reaction when you heard that news? Yeah. So I think so often Nike and Alberto have taken this stance to say, like, we haven't doped, we haven't doped, we haven't doped, you haven't proven that we've doped. And I think what really kind of shined through in a lot of what Sada reported on and you guys through HBO reported on is that there was so much drug wrongdoing that wasn't only about doping. And it wasn't only about performance enhancing purposes, but it was also just taking advantage of an athlete's health and really abusing somebody's medical histories. So for USADA to not only highlight the fact that yes, there were anti-doping rules that were broken, but there was also just such a mass taking advantage of vulnerable athletes and their health. I appreciated the fact that in the appeals process that also really shone through. Right. And that brings us to another investigation that's centered around Alberto Salazar, separate from the doping ban. He'd also been under investigation by the U.S. Center for Safe Sport. And as you know, Mary, their probe centered not on drugs, but on mistreatment of athletes like yourself. Did you work with Safe Sport throughout their investigation? Yes. And a lot of the report itself that ultimately came out is confidential. So I will not be able to speak on the basis of who else was in the report, but it is very public that I was one of the claimants in it. And that definitely was a very long and difficult process, truthfully, to be a part of. There had never really been a safe sport case that at least initially was started centering around emotional and mental abuse. And so it felt like such an important case because there was really going to be a precedent set about how seriously we address that issue in sport. Safe Sport, which is under the purview of Congress, has issued a ruling banning Salazar for life. I remember you, Mary, telling David during our interview that you felt Salazar deserved a lifetime ban. Now that it's real, you still feel that way? Yes, I do still feel that way. And I think a big reason is that 
I've always been somebody who has felt that when people make mistakes, um, if they actually want to change, then they are going to say, I'm sorry. And they're going to show that they're actually trying to change to be better in the future. And the truth is, like, that has never happened in this situation. It hasn't happened for Nike. It hasn't happened from Alberto. It hasn't come from the sports psychologist who's not a sports psychologist. And so, yeah, when it comes to like indefinitely banning a coach who's abused athletes, I think that is a very necessary way to protect people going forward in sport. And I think it's particularly important when said individual will take no accountability for their actions. So you've never heard from Alberto? No, no, I've never, never heard from him. You mentioned Nike's role in all of this after backing Salazar's USADA appeal, paying for his lawyers, and by all accounts, really standing firmly behind him. They now seem to have broken some ties. They've removed his name, for instance, from a building on campus that had been labeled in his honor. Does that redeem Nike at all in your eyes? I think, again, it just comes down to your why. Like, why is somebody doing that, right? And in this situation, as an organization, as a C-suite, there's a certain point where their why for taking his name off the building had nothing to do with the individuals he abused. Because not one of us has been reached out to. There has never been any form of public acknowledgement of the years of trauma that we went through as athletes. And so at the end of the day, if this is just a publicity stunt or something where the internal rumblings within the organization had gotten so kind of sharp, that's not exactly doing things because you actually are standing up for women or athletes' rights. Since we last saw you, Mariel, a lot has changed in your life, too. You've even launched your own running team. Tell me about it. Yeah, thank you. It's been a really, I would say, crazy past year, I think for a lot of reasons, but Atalanta NYC, we officially and publicly launched over the summer. And and so essentially, just to give a little background of the team that I've formed, we're a professional women's running team and we employ professional female athletes to come to New York City to not only train, become a part of our team, but are also given the opportunity to build their career skills by taking on specific roles within our nonprofit organization, including becoming mentors for young girls in the city who are traditionally in underserved parts of our communities. And it's been a really, I would say, educational experience taking on this entrepreneurial endeavor. I've never really done anything like this before in such like a big way becoming a CEO, going through the fundraising experiences, creating a board, doing recruiting. And it's been something that I think has been really, really exciting for me because it's a way to feel like I'm not only speaking on issues within sport, but also creating action for them. To what extent was this idea inspired by your own past experience with Nike? I would say it was 100% inspired <laughs> by it. And I'm not somebody, as has, as has become clear, that once I know something is a problem, I can't sit still. I can't just accept that and move on. I want to help make a change and make a difference. 
And it just felt like there was so much more to do. And as can be seen in my own situation, just because you talk about issues and share your story, you know, even the people who are a part of your story might not listen, might not change. And you kind of have to fight tooth and nail to really help protect the next generation. And it just felt like I could be doing more than just talking. And so, you know, creating a nonprofit where I was actively, I almost feel preemptively protecting girls and giving them the skills in many ways to, to hopefully not fall down the same pitfalls I had. You speak of a problem that needed fixing and you and a lot of other runners I spoke to in the course of working on this Nike story talked about frustrations with the traditional business model uh, with teams like Nike and other other companies. So tangibly, I mean, get big picture, what are some of the core things that you think are broken in the old model and that your team will do differently? Yeah, so I think a really big piece from just like a very business perspective is the fact that as a professional athlete, especially in Olympic sports, we are all paid through independent contractor relationships. So in these situations, our pay is fully at the whim of the organization that is supporting us and forcing us to be on the teams we're on and work with the coaches we're with. But at the end of the day, we're not given any of the, at least from a kind of year to year perspective, the protections that a traditional employee would because we're not afforded health insurance. There's no benefits. You're not given access to HR. Like there's nowhere to go besides the very, very small group that you're forced to work with. And so one of the things that our organization is doing is we're not creating these term-based, performance-based independent contracts with athletes. They're truly being taken on as employees of our nonprofit. And as a result, just from a like legal benefits perspective, they're just, they're given more opportunities and we're going to be supplying our athletes with health insurance. And there's so many kind of pieces that I think a traditional employee maybe takes for granted of the relationship with the organization they're supported by that sponsored athletes will never have the benefit of. And I think from a second piece to the puzzle, part of the problem is that from a career building perspective, you know, everybody loves to talk about how Olympians are great to hire and we love athletes and blah, blah, blah. But the problem is, you know, if you're an athlete and you've done X, Y, and Z in your sport for the last 10 to 15 years and you show up for an interview, being an athlete might kind of get you into the room for the interview because it sounds kind of cool. But as soon as you start talking to them and they realize you've never pulled up an Excel spreadsheet and you've never had to make a marketing plan and there's no career background, all of a sudden you're in this really difficult situation because you're a later 20s, early 30s, mid 30s individual who has never had an entry level job. And so what what I've felt is a major issue and something that again is isn't a hard fix is that organizations should be giving athletes the ability to build their career skills. So a piece of our organization as well is that everybody who joins our team is going to be taking on a role. They're going to be developing their career skills by actually working for us. And it's all meant to be set up in such a way where it fully supports their athletic training, 
um, and is built for things that they're interested long-term in going into. But whenever they're ready to take their next steps, their resume isn't just going to be ran in circles. It's also going to include all of the work that they've done to help support our nonprofit. Last question for you, Mary. It's clear that you have ambitions to help the next generation of runners, but as we sit here, you're still only 25 years old. So what are your goals for your own future in in track and field? I think right now, my number one priority in sport is to get healthy and stay healthy to the best of my abilities. And I think the truth is that I don't know what my sports future is going to bring. Maybe I'm going to tomorrow all of a sudden be trying to be a a better swimmer, do triathlon, run more. I'm not quite sure yet, but I think there's something really, really nice about knowing that I don't know exactly what it's going to look like, but I'm going to do it healthy. I'm going to do it right. And I'm going to try really, really hard to listen to myself and to know that no matter what, what the sport is, what the level is, what the goals are that I will always first take care of myself. Well, uh, we wish you certainly the best of luck in in getting healthy and with your new team. It's great to uh, catch up with you and hear about everything going on. Uh, Thank you again for taking the time to come on. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. And that'll do it for today's Real Sports Podcast. We'll be back with a new episode following the premiere of The Next Real Sports on October 19th. And a quick reminder to everyone listening, you can watch all recent episodes of Real Sports with Bryant Gumbel on HBO Max. I'm your host, Max Kirschberg. Thanks for listening, and please join us again next time.